starting at verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the, time, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Let's pray as we... Uh, enter into a time of reflecting on God's word. Let's pray. Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, we've been working our way through the book of Galatians for a couple of months now. And and, and normally I say, like, one of the great things about this is we get to see the themes of the the book and we get to understand uh, from a holistic standpoint what the author is trying to communicate. And we get to look at all the different verses, not just the ones that are easy to preach and not just the easy one, the ones that are easy to listen to, but the difficult ones as well. But there's also a pitfall to preaching through a book of the Bible in the manner that we're doing it, where you just take a few verses and then you look at the next few verses and then you look at the next few verses. And that is simply that you can lose the forest for the trees right? You can begin to think that there's these massive shifts in conversation when in actuality there's not. So, so we have to remember the reason that Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia. Remember, there's a, there's a number of churches in this region in Galatia, which is part of modern-day Turkey, in this area that Paul is writing to. And what's happened there is the Galatians had received the gospel of Christ, of freedom from the law and grace, but then these agitators, as Paul calls, the, calls them, come in and they begin to say, no, 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 no. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus, then you actually need to adhere to the law. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow the dietary restrictions. You need to observe Sabbath. You need to do all of these things. You essentially need to become Jewish in order to be a follower of Jesus. And they were so convincing in their arguments that even Peter himself separated himself from 
eating with Gentile Christians. He was only eating with the Jewish Christians and refused to eat with those who were circumcised. Right? And then Paul rebukes Peter for this behavior. Now, it seems like this was a long time ago because for us it was like a month or more ago that we, ha- we talked about that particular passage. But when you look at it in the context of the whole book, it's not that long ago. Like we're at the end of chapter 3. That was in the middle. Uh, that was chapter 2. Like that was, a, was less, that was a chapter ago. It was the last chapter. You could probably, you could, you could count out the number of sentences that got you from that point to this point and it wouldn't be that many. And so we need to remember that particular context, that context of Jewish Christians lording over their Jewishness over the Gentile Christians and and, and calling the Gentile Christians to become circumcised and to become Jewish and to follow the law. We need to remember that because what we're going to talk about this morning connects to that idea. But in order to connect to that idea... We've really got to get through some heavy theology. This morning, especially on the, I'm going to say, the whole thing's not going to be light, but for different reasons, it's going to feel heavy. And the front end of this is going to be like, we're we're talking varsity theology, okay? So everybody, get yourself ready, get a cup of coffee, we're going to go into this, okay? So if you got your Bible still open, let's go back to the text. I want to connect two parts of this particular passage. So start at 23. I'm going to read it at the beginning, and then I'll tell you where to go. So start at verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified through faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Jump down to chapter 4, verse 1. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his heirs, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. I hope that you can see how those two parts of this particular passage fit together. And in in particular, what connects them is this this language of either, you can either look at it from the language of being an heir or this language of guardians, right? So we have this, the law is acting as a guardian up in the front half of the passage. And then Paul brings that idea back around at the beginning of chapter 4 to this idea of a child who inherits an estate but has guardians or trustees over top of them. So immediately when I read this section, I thought of a few years back, when, right after Luke was born, and I remember because he was still in his carrier, uh, we contacted Bob Clemens, who he's a lawyer who used to attend here at CCC. We contacted Bob and we're like, hey, we have a child now. I mean, we're full on adulting. We need a will, right? Um, and because and, it's just, that's a good, if you don't have one, you should get one. It's just good advice. Like there's my pastoral advice for the day, get a will. So we go, like we call on it. We're like, hey, we need to get a will. 
which seems like it'd be a very straightforward experience, right? The lawyer would draw up some documents. We say, yes, we'd like our children to get all the money we have. Please sign on the dotted line, and we'd be out the door. Oh, no, 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 no. We get called into a conference room where we're sitting across the table from one of Bob's associates, another lawyer, and he just begins to run through scenario after scenario after... It's like the most sobering experience ever because it just... Here's how the meeting starts out. So when you die which is just like how you want every meeting to start out. So when you die, what would you like to have happen to your money? Oh, okay, so like our child can have the $34 we have left. That is, that's, that's great. Like they can have all of it. And then it starts going like, where would you, like who gets custody of your children? And then you're like, oh, okay, who's my favorite relative, right? Like you start doing this. And then it's just like, they're like, okay, now we're done, right? And it's like, no, no, no. What happens if one of them dies? Like, does your children stay with them, or do they have to go to someone else? What if they die? Like, who's your second choice, right? If, if let's, let's say, like, they have them, right? But, like, okay, so they're with, let's just, we're hypothetical here. I don't remember exactly how it's set up. I haven't read my will in a while, but, uh, you know, it's like, never mind. Anyways, so, uh, like, it, they go to Sarah's, Sarah's sister. Like, what if her sister dies? Do they stay with your brother-in-law? That's now a whole nother scenario, right? Like, so you start thinking through all of these different scenarios. And then it's not just like, uh, what if all these people in your family die? I think about four people that day got run over by some bus somewhere. That's how he set up everything. So-and-so goes out, they get run over by bus. All right. Then, then it was, you know, like, okay, think about your estate, right? You got $34. Do they get all of it at age 18? Or do they only get some of it at 18 just in case they all go and they all blow it on magazines that day? Do they get some of it when they turn 25? If so, how much? How much control do the trustees, do your guardians have over it? Can they use some of that money to help pay for childcare and for living expenses and all of that? How much do they have to set aside for college funds? How much do they have to do that for this? How much do you have to do that? And for the, by the end of it, you're just like, I am never going to die ever because it's just too complicated, right? Like this is what it was like. And this is, this is what Paul is sort of hinting at. He's hinting at this whole process, particularly this process of how much of the estate do the children get. And he says, like, it, even if a child is left the entire estate and their family passes away, they're still, and he uses the language of slave. He says they're still like a slave. They don't have freedom yet. They don't have full control. In this in this. Uh, day and age, like even though it's a long time ago, it's very similar to ours. It wasn't that a 13-year-old suddenly became the master of the household. Typically, there were guardians who would watch over the estate until the child turned 18, at which point they may not even get full control of the estate. They probably, what was custom, was that they wouldn't get full control until 25. Right. So Paul is saying the law is like a guardian. You're an heir, but the law was like a guardian until the appointed time at which the fullness of your inheritance would come to you. So, so if we go back to last week, God promised salvation and inheritance to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. And then 430 years later, the law is given to Moses. Now, the law did not change the promise, right? What we talked about last week is that the promise is solely a promise based on God. It wasn't that God promised something to Abraham and then kind of changed the terms of the promise by saying, but now you've got to perform according to these laws that I've now laid out to you. Rather, the promise still stands. 
The inheritance, salvation, is still going to come to Abraham and to his descendants, and it solely is based upon God's word. Rather, the law was meant to act as a guardian over the people of God until the fullness of time at which God would reveal his plan for salvation in Jesus Christ. And when the appointed time came, God took on flesh, was born of a woman under the law in order to fulfill the law and therefore redeem those of us fellow human beings who have been guarded over by the law so that we might become the redeemed and adopted sons and co-heirs of the inheritance through Christ Jesus. That's weighty theological stuff. Now, before we begin to pull that apart even more, I want to I acknowledge something. In everything I just said, and even in the way that I read it in the book of Galatians, I read it through and I talked about it in terms of sons. Typically, I do not do this. Some of you may have caught that I do this. Others of you may not. I use sons and daughters quite regularly when we come across like something in the Bible where it says brothers. I'll say brothers and sisters. When, I say, when it says man, I'll use humankind. I use that more inclusive language. And the reason that I do that is because that's actually the intent of the authors. Right? When the authors are saying mankind, they actually mean humankind. Right? They don't they say mankind falls into sin. It's not just men. Right? Let's, can we be honest about that? I mean, we sin a lot, men, thank you. But it's not just the men who are under sin. Right? It's, it's inclusive. There's this, there's this way in which that language, and even to today to some degree, in, is, is reserved for all of humankind. But I want to I hit the thrust of and not exclude anybody. So I want to hit the thrust of the gospel by becoming inclusive. However, in this passage, I used, in particular, the language of sons because there's something revolutionary happening in this passage that we will miss out on if we jump right to the inclusive language. At the time that Paul was writing the book of Galatians, sons were the heirs. Women typically didn't own property, and they certainly were not heirs to inherit properly. In fact, if a man did not have a son as an heir, oftentimes what would happen is they would, ad- they would adopt a servant, a slave, to become their heir, right? And so when Paul says, we are all sons, he's doing something incredibly revolutionary and something that's incredibly egalitarian. He's saying that we, in Christ, men and women, all of us are sons. In other words, we're all heirs. Those who were previously excluded from the inheritance are now included in the inheritance. We're all sons. This is what's so incredibly revolutionary about what Paul is saying here. He equalizes everything. It's not just a man thing. Men aren't the only heirs. Women are as well. You are an heir to the inheritance of God through Christ. Now, what's also true about the way that inheritance is worked in the ancient times what they, is that they would practice something called primogeniture. I think I'm saying that right. It's a really long word. Essentially what it means is that the oldest son got virtually the entire inheritance from the father. The oldest son got the most of it. 
As, a, as an older brother, I see this as a God-ordained practice. <laughs> I'm so in trouble. Sorry, Justin. So, when Paul says, notice that Paul says, if you belong to Christ, if you got your text, you can open it up. If you belong to Christ, this is verse, chapter 3, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, look back at chapter 3, verse 16. There Paul writes, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not see, say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So, the beginning of chapter, or the middle of chapter 3, Paul says, okay, when we're talking about seed, we're talking about one person, Christ. But then at the end of chapter 3, he's saying, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Now, is he, is he saying that we are all equal with Jesus? No. Obviously not. What he's saying is the promise of God, the inheritance that God promised to Abraham, was spoken to him and to his seed, who is Jesus. And so the promise, the inheritance, belongs to Jesus. And then those of us who have faith in Jesus, those of us who are united to Christ, become seeds of Abraham through the seed who is Christ. Jesus is the firstborn. Jesus is the elder brother. The inheritance is his. But God, in his grace, extends to us the promise and the inheritance that was spoken to Abraham and to his seed, Jesus. And when we are, have faith in Christ and when we are baptized in Christ, we clothe ourselves in Christ, becoming like him, imitating him, being close to him, being sheltered by him. And this is what makes us heirs to the inheritance. Now, let's just stop and admit something. This is dense theological language. Like, these are grown-up ideas. These are things that theologians love writing thousands and thousands and thousands of words about. And it's super philosophical, and it kind of exists up in the ether, right? Great. I'm an heir to the inheritance through Jesus Christ, the seed. The promises have been spoken to him. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I clothe myself with Christ. Like, that's, that's, that's great language. Like, and, and, and for theological junkies, for people who like to think philosophically about stuff, like, it's wonderful, and we can maybe even see some of the beauty of it, but for most of it, like, it's just, most of us is just kind of like existing up here, and like, what do we do with that? Like, so What? What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be clothed with Christ? What does it mean to be co-heirs with Jesus? What, what does it mean that, like, okay, Nate, you talked about this radical equality that's happening because we're all sons and heirs. Like, okay, what does that mean? What does it look like to pull that out of the theological ether and put it down on the ground and make it applicable? So, so let's, let's try that. Let's try to pull them out of the ether and let's try to do something with them. We'll just start with a question. If I am clothed in Christ, right? And you just think about what clothes do. Clothes are an identity marker, right? You can tell someone who someone is by the type of clothes they are. You can tell their, their nationality, their ethnicity. You can tell socio 
socioeconomic standing. Uh, you, you can tell a little bit about what they value. You can, you can make all these assumptions. Some of that is you're making assumptions, but you can tell a lot, right? You can tell a lot by what people wear. You, you can think about clothes as a way that clothes protect us from the elements. Clothes cover our shame. Clothes, I mean, clothes do all kinds of things, right? Clothes are close to us, and the clothes are always present with us. And so when we clothe ourselves in Christ, we can say all these same things. Christ is our identity. Christ covers our shame. Christ uh, protects us. Christ is always present with us, right? The, the list goes on and on. The analogy is, you get it. So, if I am clothed with Christ, and you are clothed with Christ, and you're clothed with Christ, and you're clothed with Christ, and you're clothed with Christ. And what's the difference between us? Yeah. Like nothing, right? Like all of a sudden, the, the things that have... Well, let me, let me, let me do it again. One more, let's just do it another way. If, if, if you're an inherit, heir to the inheritance... And if you're an heir to the inheritance, and if you're an heir to the inheritance, and if I'm an heir to the inheritance, what, what, what separates us? Like all of a sudden, all the normal barriers that get between us as people no longer matter. And this is what Paul is driving at in verse 28 when he says there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. Neither is there male nor female. Now, let's be really clear. Paul is not saying that these distinctions and these differences no longer matter. Right? He isn't saying that men cease to be men and women cease to be women. Instead, Paul is saying that the barriers that create hierarchy, the barriers that create pride, that I am this thing. Remember, remember the context here of Paul rebuking Peter for separating himself from the, from the Gentile Christians, from the uncircumcised. This thing that I took pride in, or is this thing that caused me to look down my nose at another, this thing no longer is important because you're clothed with Christ and you're clothed with Christ and you're clothed with Christ and you're an heir to the inheritance and you're an heir to the inheritance and you are and so am I. And so as you clothe yourselves with Christ and as I clothe myself with Christ, the cultural barriers that cause us to separate ourselves, and there are three major ones here, right? Jew and Gentile, which would be race or culture. Slave or free, which we would now list as economic, socioeconomic, rich or poor. Male and female. Gender. These barriers that so often divide us no longer ought to, particularly in the church, because in the church, in the community of faith where we are all baptized with Christ and clothed with Christ and understand that we're all heirs to the inheritance, within the church, there's no hierarchy. We're all co heirs, we're all in equal place. We've all been dressed with Christ. And suddenly those things that separate us, that get in the way, that divide us, they become unimportant and secondary. Now, all that said, I want to tease out this idea even further so we can see what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. 
And this is where it's going to get heavy for a different reason. Because what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to tease it out in one particular way because I think that this is an issue that's right now in our society a big issue, and that's the issue of race. Whether we like it or not, race is back in the forefront of the conversation on our national level in a way that it hasn't really been since the civil rights. And there's a lot of disagreement and there's a lot of tension around that. And, and, and so what I want to be clear about is when Paul says that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, what he's not saying is that those, those things, those distinctions, those differences no longer exist. Again, what he's saying is they no longer ought to make us feel superior, and they no longer ought to be a means by which the body of Christ is divided up. And why I want to focus on the issue of race in particular is because I have said this in the past, and it's something that I'm learning to repent from, and it's something that has been said to me in the past, and this passage has been a support for this position. And the thing that I've said and the thing that I've heard others say in connection with this is, I don't see race. Right? It's this idea of being colorblind. And people point, like, I don't see race and we shouldn't see race because there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Right? That's how this passage gets brought in. I'm colorblind. I, I, I don't see differences. I don't judge people that way. And, and right, that's right, but it's wrong to use this passage in this particular way. And here's why. Here's how I know that that is a wrong interpretation and a wrong application of this passage. Here's how I know this. Do you see gender? Yes. Do you think we ought to continue to see gender? Yes. Okay, good. Do you see the difference between rich and poor? Yes. Like if you're saying it, like go to Keystone, go to the fashion mall, go to Walmart. And if you don't see the difference between the different kind of clientele there, then, I mean... Obviously, we see this. And, and we ought to see the distinction between rich and poor as a people who are called to care for the poor. If we can't identify who the poor are, then how do we care for the poor, right? Like, we ought to see that distinction. And so, seeing the so if we see the difference between male and female, and we should continue to see the difference between male and female, and we can see the difference in the distinction between rich and poor, and we continue to see the distinction of rich and poor, does it make any sense then that all of a sudden we go, yeah, but I don't see race, there's neither Jew nor Gentile? No, it would be really weird to all of a sudden have that logic applied to one-third of Paul's argument. And so seeing the distinctions and the differences between race and gender and rich and poor matter. Not because we see those... Not, they matter because in order to see those differences... Well, let me say it like... In, in order to see the inequalities between those groups, we need to see the differences. Because if it's true, if we are all equals in Christ, if we're all heirs, if we all share the same inheritance, if we're all brothers and sisters, if we're all clothed with Christ and we identify with Christ and we're imitating Christ and we're all set free by Christ, then we ought to be treated accordingly within the body of Christ. And this spiritual reality 
that is worked out within the new community that Jesus is gathering together becomes then a light in the world. This is how we are light in the darkness. This is how we become a city on the hill is when we recognize that there is a difference between how people are treated because of their race or because of their gender or because of their socioeconomic standing. And we say, in here, those don't matter any longer. So yes, yes, I see race. And because I see race, I see injustices that have been perpetuated because of social systems and structures in the world. And I see that I have certain advantages because of my skin color. Doesn't mean that, my, doesn't mean that life is easy, doesn't mean that everything's been handed, but it does mean that there are certain advantages that I have because of my skin color. And because, because I believe that you, someone who has a different race, a different ethnicity, a different background than me, because I believe that you also are clothed with Christ and are an heir to the inheritance, I'm going to work to make sure that those injustices that have existed and have been put upon you in the past, are not present in the church. I'm going to work for that. I'm going to work to make sure that those injustices and those prejudices that have been acted about are not here. And those beliefs are going to trickle out into how I think about showing up in the world out there. And I see rich and I see poor. And I recognize that the rich have been given certain advantages and enjoy certain privileges and are given certain deference because of their socioeconomic standing alone. And because we are co-heirs in Christ, because we have the same inheritance, I'm going to work to see that those privileges and those deferences are not given in the church. Because it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. We're all heirs. We're all equal. And those beliefs are going to trickle out into the world and how I think and live out there. And I see gender. I see that strong women are labeled as bossy. And that vocal women are labeled as shrill. And that differences between men and women exist in the world. I see that. And I'm going to work to make sure that those differences are both celebrated in the church and are also not the source of some sort of hierarchy within the church. Because in Christ, we are all heirs, not just men. And those beliefs are going to trickle out into how I think and live out there. So seeing race and seeing gender and seeing socioeconomic status, it allows us, this is, this, is, this is what we have to recognize, it allows us to love our neighbor in a more accurate way. Because if we go blind to our neighbor, if we say, I no longer see you, I no longer see the past, I no longer see the injustices, I no longer, if I no longer see those, then I'm in a sense saying, I don't want to love that aspect of you. And Paul in no way is doing away with these distinctions and these differences. Rather, he's making the argument that we're all equal. And we ought to work for equality, but we can't work for equality where we deny that inequality exists. And so, yes, we see these things. 
And not only does seeing the differences and the distinctions between the people groups and how people are treated help us to more accurately love our neighbor, but it also gives us a better, more clear picture of the beautiful diversity of the kingdom of God. When I say I see race and I see gender and I see socioeconomic status, it allows me to see the picture of the worshiping community of the body of Christ that is portrayed in the book of Revelation. Jamar Tisby, in his book, The Color of Compromise, he points to this picture and he says this. If you want to put that uh, there. There it is. In the heavenly congregation, we will finally see the culmination of God's gathering, a diverse people unified by faith in Christ. We will not all be white. We will not all be black. We will surround the throne of the Lamb as as a redeemed picture of all the ethnic and cultural diversity God created. Our skin color will no longer be a source of pain or arrogant pride, but will serve as a multi-hued reflection of God's image. We will no longer be alienated by our earthly economic or social position. We will not clamor for power over one another. Our single focus will be worshiping God for eternity in sublime fellowship with each other and with our Creator. This is the wonder and the beauty of the family of God. The family of God extends beyond family and heritage and lineage and instead is based solely upon faith in Christ. And those who have faith, those who have been baptized with Christ, are clothed with him and are heirs to the inheritance. And one day the fullness of that reality will be realized as we worship in the kingdom of God when it is fully established. Until then, until then, we work and we pray on earth as it is in heaven. May our minds, hearts, bodies, and souls be captured by that wonderful truth. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the wonderful gift of being called heirs of the inheritance. That you would adopt each and every one of us in Christ. that your signet ring would be placed on our finger and your robe wrapped around our shoulders. Lord, we give you thanks. And we recognize, Lord, that there are that there are places, not just in the world, yes, in the world, but there are also places in our country and in our state and in our city even where people are not treated equal because of their, their race, their gender, and whether they're rich or poor. And we recognize that those inequalities exist and are perpetuated by systems, by structures, and by attitudes. We recognize that sometimes it's easier to turn a blind eye to those inequalities and to those injustices because 
to see them would require significant change in us, in our hearts, but then even just how we think about and perceive of the structuring of, of our communities. But may we be so captured by the, the vision that you've given us of your kingdom, where the first are last and the last are first. Where every tribe and every tongue and every nation bow down before Christ. Where all of us are seated at the banquet table. Not some with a special seat because of the same things that give them advantages here in this world, Lord, but all of us sit at an equal place, all of us co-heirs, all of us adopted sons and adopted daughters. May we be captured by that vision so that we're willing to do the hard work here in the church so that the church might be a city on a hill, a light in the darkness, the body of Christ, a new community that is gathered, who interacts with people and treats people and responds to the inequalities and injustices of the world in a new way that reflects accurately the kingdom of Jesus. May we be agents of reconciliation, ambassadors for this new community, this new polis, this new city that you are creating. And may the things in us that need to change, the things that maybe view the poor with suspicion, or view the other gender with fear, different to those of different races. May the things that need to change in us change. That we might that we might be able to live into the reality that all of us are clothed with Christ. All of us co-heirs. May that work exist in the church and may it work exist out in the world. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.